If you haven't yet, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, it is with joy and boldness and fear and trembling that we come into your presence. And as we again look and look and look to your Son who has come and he has adorned himself with flesh and the Word became flesh, God, we ask as we look to when your Son has come that you would prepare our hearts for Him to come again. And this can only happen when we turn to your Word. And so again, it is to your Word that we turn and we ask that you would create in us a new heart that is ready to prepare Worship for your Son to come again. So we pray all of this in your glorious Son's name. Amen. Amen. He was born in wealth. And he died in absolute poverty. Not the trajectory that many of us are aiming for. While we seek to ascend, Nicholas of Myra intentionally brought himself low. He was born to a a family of wealthy Greek Christians. And after his parents passed away, he inherited everything. And in order, as as a means of making himself low, he began to give everything that he had. He gave it all away. And his generosity overflowed and overflowed. And under the persecution of Diocletian, this man who was born into pomp and circumstance and wealth, finds himself being tortured in the dungeons because of his faith. What would possess such a man to let go of everything? And press himself lower and lower and lower. St. Nicholas's ardent faith is remembered this time of year. But we must remember that he is only following the path of the one who went before us. So we don't look to St. Nicholas, we look to Christ. And it is Christ himself. Who has come and has pressed aside all of his glory. And he is the one who has come and humbled himself. And so when we look at this passage. What we want to have in our minds. Ringing through our minds. Is that we are to follow him. That we are to follow Christ. Both in his humility. And then finally in his exaltation as well. So what we're going to see here. um, In verses 5 through 7, we're going to start there. We're going to see him emptying himself. We're going to see Christ emptying himself. And then in verse 8, we're going to see Christ's humility. How is he humble? He's humble through obedience. And then finally, verses 9 through 11, we're going to see Christ's exaltation unto the glory of God the Father. 
As we've been going through all this Advent season, it was Adam and Curtis had this marvelous idea of just taking time to reflect on humility and how this is woven throughout everything. So Kevin started us and he made it quite clear that humility begins with the fear of the Lord. Humility begins with the fear of the Lord. And then, so then we looked at the birth of Christ in Luke 2 and we saw that everything surrounding the birth of Christ was intentionally humble. It was a humble city of a humble mother and a humble birth in a cave. And he had humble guests, shepherds. And then last week, Adam showed us how God will intentionally, God will intentionally use the lowly and the humble for his own glory. He won't use people because they're great. He didn't use the Israelites because they were great or prosperous or even that godly. But no, why did he use them? He used them because they were low and humbly small in number so that his glory might be astoundingly large. So now we're going to look at this truth in action through the life of Christ. We're going to see how Christ empties himself and is exalted. So let's go to the text here in verse 5. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the first thing you see here with Paul's imperative is that he's addressing the whole church. This Christian life, as we're thinking about humility, it's not, it's not something of, of like a, a contemplative isolation that you think you're going to come over by yourself and, and, and give everything away and then press yourself low. No, that's not what Paul is inviting them into. He said, have this mind where? Amongst yourselves. This is a, a corporate thing that the body of Christ, this local church in Philippi, is going to be working through this humility. Not just in their own lives, but as a body, as a local church. So as we live out our Christian life, we obviously we live it out with other Christians. It's the evil one who will draw you into isolation and desperation and despair. But it is the Spirit of God who is pressing you to draw into His people continually. And all of this, have this mind amongst yourselves, okay, which is yours. How do we have it? In Christ Jesus. So if Paul, he can't help them, help himself to continually to draw them. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Have this mind amongst yourself that is yours in Christ Jesus. You see here, even in verse, chapter one, verse one, he's saying that he is a servant and a saint of Christ Jesus. In chapter one, verse six, he said, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. When? In the day of Christ. And we have the fruit of righteousness. How does it come to us? Well, it comes to us through Christ. Okay, Paul is pointing to Christ and Christ and Christ and Christ throughout this whole epistle. In chapter 1, verse 20 then, we even see that we have full courage both now and always that Christ will be honored in our bodies 
either by life or by death. And then later on in chapter 3, he said, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth and value of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here we want you to see that your whole life, your whole life is in Christ. It's, it's not as though you're an employer or an employee or a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle and then you also have Christ over here. No, Christ is all that you have. He is everything. He should be consuming your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole soul. So when we look at humility and humility in Christ, what we're doing is stepping back and looking at the Christian life, which is all of our lives in Christ and looking at one little facet of this gem. And that is what we have in Christ. Okay, so, well, tell me about this Christ then. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, during the Advent season, it's obvious that we make much about the birth of Christ. But we can't lose sight of the fact that he eternally existed in full glory and perfection and honor and unity with the Father and with the Spirit. And so when, when we keep this in mind, it actually makes the birth that much more beautiful and powerful. Instead of thinking Christ just starting in Bethlehem, that no, he was with the Father and the Spirit in full glory and unity beforehand. So here is Christ, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. But the grandeur of his status could not withhold him from humility. So he did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. But he let go of it. There he was, the only begotten Son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance for the Father. Through him and through, uh, through him all things were made. But for us and for our salvation, he humbled himself. What did he do? He came down from heaven. But he did not regard this equality with God as something to be grasped. It's not like uh, holding on tight to a hammer or something like that. But no, to, to grasp is this word of, of spoil. Something that you plunder or hold on to for your own benefit. So he's not holding on to this equality with God for his own benefit, for his own posturing, that he might be elevated. No, no, he is willing to let all of that go. Even though he existed in the form of God. In essence, essence in the substance he was willing to let go here. Lest you think that this theological things of Christ being fully God and now fully God and fully man, unless you think of this as irrelevant, how he is grasping not for his own posturing and to be with God. How quickly are we grasping for the things that Christ let go of? A massive amount of our lives are spent consuming 
and clinging to things that will not go beyond this life. Grasping the things that we have absolutely nothing to do with the substance or essence of who we truly are. So the irony of this message of Christ coming and letting go of all of this. He didn't grasp onto it. Is that we highlight this now at Christmas time when the world around us is preaching the exact opposite gospel. That you may be found grasping to things of this world and elevating yourself. So unless you are willing to find yourself fighting and fighting, unless you are doing fighting that, you will find yourself grasping for the things of this world. And as you do that, you might think it's no big deal. But as you are grasping for the things of this world, you will find it dearly impossible to grasp and lay hold of Christ. So is Christ here. Even though he was in the form of God, what does he do? He empties himself into the mysterious and the divine, all wrapped in one here. And as you read the text here, read verse 7. But he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant. He's not emptying himself by setting aside his glory or his, his him being God. He's not putting that aside or, or pressing it down. No, what is he doing? He's emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. So when we think of ourselves, when we think of Christ emptying himself, it's not so much what did he empty himself of? He's not, he's not less than God the Father. He's not less God than the Spirit. He's, it's not so much what did he empty himself of, but rather what did he empty himself into? And he emptied himself into being a servant. And being a servant for us all. So he had the, he had the form of God. Do you see what's happening here? Though he was in the form of God, what did he do? Well, he pours himself then into the form of a servant, being born then in the likeness of men. We will often magnify our own glory, won't we? Alright, we even train our kids to do this. Walk. Shoulders back, head up. Right? Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't show any weakness. And nobody cares. Anyways, don't cry. And when you walk into the room, don't walk in like you own the place. Walk in like you don't care who owns the place, right? And we, we magnify our own glory. Oh, women dress just provocatively. Show a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little flirtatious look. Whatever glory you might have, let it shine. But here in Christ, He who is in the form of God did not think of it as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself into taking the form of a servant. A servant. Not a king, not an emperor, not a general. Uh, but of a servant. So we see here how Christ has come. And how did he come? Well, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, to cling to. Even in a time when we grasp and cling to and unwrap so many different things as though it's going to fulfill us. Here's Christ saying, no. 
Even though you're in the form of God, I will let that go and I will humble myself and I will be born and pour myself into no longer the form of God, but now the form of his servant, still fully God, not fully man. And we can ask ourselves, well, then what does his life look like? Well, look at here in verse eight, a summation of the life of Christ. And being bound, being found in the human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, as if that's not enough, even death upon a cross. So plainly put, humility is worked out through obedience. Being born and laid in a manger wasn't low enough For this eternally exalted son of God. But it wasn't a a flicker of faithfulness. When we think of obedience. We think I'll obey and then I can do whatever I want. And then I'll come back and pacify. Try to redeem myself. It happens with the kids. It happens in marriage all the time. But no the life of Christ is that of full and complete obedience. From beginning to end. Complete obedience and subjection to God the Father. So when we look at the life of Christ. A way of looking at it. Is through his obedience. What does it look like. For Christ the eternally son of God. To be obedient to his father. We see in Hebrews chapter 10. That his entire life is spent doing the will of God the Father. And I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It's not just that he desired to do the will of God, but even the words that he spoke. You see in John chapter 12. Every word that he spoke, imagine that. Imagine, imagine having that standard in your life, that every word you speak would only be the words that God would have you to say. I know I would say far less. (laughs) But here is Christ. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. Then finally, also in, in John 5, Jesus told to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do anything. Not just will, not just words, anything. The Son cannot do anything of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And this obedience to Christ, the obedience of Christ to the Father, lasted not just in His birth, Not just in his coming, but in his birth. Not just speaking the words of the Father, his will, and not doing anything of his own initiative, but only that of the Father. It even goes through to the very end, in the very final hours when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's his prayer? His Father, take this cup from me, but not yet as I will, but as you will. Let your will be done. And his obedience... His obedience and following the will of God that leads him to death. But not just death. Even death upon a cross. So this path of humility 
has brought him from the throne room of God to death upon the cross. This is what obedience to God looks like in the life of Christ. So look at this. The climax of his obedience and the lowliness of his humility, they happen at the same point on the cross. And how tempted we're to think that if we could only obey, we love to go, let's go back to the blessings and cursings, and I will do everything of the blessings, and I will, I will obey and God will bless me. But look at the life of Christ. Complete obedience, absolute humility, and death, even death upon the cross. Fully obedient and completely humbled. Following the will of his father. And there he was pierced through. So why did he descend from glory? And why was he born? And why did he die? Well he did it for us. And for our salvation. Christ is born in all of his glory. And the angels are there singing. Already God the father is exalting him. In his humility there. Christ is born in perfection and we are born in our sin. And Christ is obedient to the Father in thought and word and deed and action. In every aspect of his life, he completely humble and obedient to God the Father. Whereas we are obedient to ourselves in our selfishness, in our lust, and our desires. So who's going to redeem you? Who's going to redeem you then from all of this sin? You know. Just as, as presents around Christmas time, apart from Christ, are completely empty. In the same way, you can have all of your desires, but they are completely empty apart from Christ. Why do you think depression and suicide, why do they rise up this time of year? Every year, like clockwork. Well, you have time to contemplate the busyness of our routines gets paused a little bit, and you have time to contemplate, and there you look at it, and you're forced to wrestle with the effects of your own sin and with the sins of the others. Broken relationships, broken homes, broken hearts. As we see depression and suicide rise in this time of year, and you can hardly stand yourself in the midst of your own sin. How are you going to stand before a holy and just God with that same sin? You can't. But there is one way. And it's more than just celebrating the birth of Christ. It's more than opening presents and drinking eggnog and singing carols, which are fun. Don't do that stuff and think that you are right and, and complete, that your, that your sins won't be consumed by a holy and righteous God. You must believe, brothers and sisters, you must believe and believe in Christ. Trust in Him, for He alone is able to save you from your sins that rise up the depression and drive you to despair again and again and again. So let this season of His birth also be the time of your rebirth as well. All right, so what have we seen so far? Christ has emptied himself. Even though he was in the form of God, 
He doesn't grasp onto it, but he keeps going lower. He's born, and then he humbles himself through obedience. And then, because of that, he's dying, and it gets lower and lower. But he doesn't just die, this eternal son of eternal glory. He doesn't just die, but he dies a death upon the cross. Humbled by the very tree he created to make the cross. The very metal he put in the ground. The very breath of the soldiers. There, he is completely humbled. Now, thankfully, we are going to see that humiliation and death are never the end. They're never the end. For those who are in Christ and for Christ himself. Go back to these verses here. 9, 10, and 11. Let's see what we have here. Verse 9. Therefore, because of all of this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, name meaning identity. What's your identity? That's your name. That's why Jacob gets a new name. Abraham, Abraham goes to Abraham. You get a new identity. So at the identity that's going on with the idea of name here. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So humility, born out through obedience, brings Christ again to the crucible where he's there hanging upon the cross. He's in the grave. And we must remember that the pain elicited by these Roman soldiers is nothing compared to the wrath of God the Father that was poured out in him for our sins. But death had no victory over him and a tomb could not keep him. His humility led him to a temporary death and then also into eternal exaltation. So, we see here that every knee will bow. Not just heaven, where those, where you would, you would expect it in heaven. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. People love you, want to worship you, they obviously will worship you in heaven. Okay. Not just heaven, but here on earth, possibly when he returns, they will bow their knee, bend their knee in complete submission and honor to you, Christ. But not only in heaven and on earth, but also under the earth. That is, those who don't bend their knees in reverent love now will bend it in fear later. All of you, all of you in this room will be bowing your knees in submission and worship to the Son. But unless we trust in Christ and turn to Him to take all of our sins, you won't be doing it in reverent love and worship. You will be doing it in fear and humility. Notice also here, when does the exaltation of Christ happen? When does it happen? After his death. Did you see that? 
His exaltation isn't having his best life now. His exaltation is going back into the presence of God the Father and having the nations as a footstool as he's on his throne. And without even, without even knowing it, we have to admit it, we got a little prosperity gospel in us, don't we? We want a little bit of the exaltation now. But the problem with that gospel is it's far too little and it's far too soon. It's not, your exaltation is nothing you're going to see here in this world. Don't long for it. Don't, don't throw yourself after it. This isn't it. Your exaltation will be going back into the presence of God the Father and seeing Him face to face. Let that be your burning star that drives you to come and adore this King. Let that bring you home and home to Christ. Don't long for the things of this world. And all of this happens. How does that happen then? Well, it happens to the glory of God the Father. Now you finally see the ultimate reason for Christmas. Is that all of this happens unto the glory of God the Father. To bring us to a place where we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why does that happen? So that God the Father might be glorified. Think of all of this grand story happening. Of Christ being with God the Father throughout all of eternity. Coming and being born and subjecting himself through obedience. This humble life that leads him to death. And even not just death. But death upon the cross. Where he's betrayed by friends. And not welcomed by anybody but mockers. All of this has happened so that God the Father might be glorified. And this, brothers and sisters, is also why you're able to know in the realms of glory to come. When you are exalted, you can do it. I mean, we're Minnesotans, so there's always a little bit of guilt in any pleasure that we have. But, it's true. You can do this with absolute delight. Knowing that as your ardent love for God rises and rises, and your pleasure in Him rises and rises, He is just more glorified through you. So all of this worship towards the Son, who has come in the flesh, who was born in a manger, will be a ceaseless flow of praise to God the Father. This is what Christmas is about. You can take your presents, I don't care. Christ has come to redeem His people so that we will confess and bow our knees in seeing that Jesus Christ is Lord so that God might be glorified. That's all that matters. So what do we do? What do we do with this? As a church, firstly, again, we must remember the corporate nature in which this is lived out. Verse 3 here. Paul does a little bit of the application and then gets to it. So look up in verse 3. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what do we do? In humility, count others as more significant or as higher than yourselves. 
So again, your humility is not lived out in a contemplative vacuum. But as Christ lowered Himself in full submission to the Father, we have that same attitude towards others in this church. As we press ourselves down, as we are lowly by seeing the glory of God, and we are by by uh, by response naturally brought low, that we would see others and regard them as more significant than ourselves. So one, remember the corporate nature of this. Number two, finally, continue in humility until God exalts you. The exaltation is not your part. That's God's part. Your job is humility through obedience. So not only will, if we lived out this humility, not only will others around you probably like you a lot more, but your intimate relationship with God will prosper and thrive. Just as pride is the root of all evil, John Christendom Kristen, uh, Chris Awesome <laughs> wrote, I got it out. Humility is the root. Humility is the root, the mother, the nurse, the foundation, and the bond of all virtue. So just as the arm of God will press down the proud, so too will the face of God shine upon those in their humble obedience. So, brothers and sisters, walk joyfully through this valley of humility that we see the Christ walking before us. For we know the sure end of this path is not humility. The sure end of this path is the gilded mountaintops in which we will see and delight in the presence of God. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be known by you, but God, we, in our hearts, if we are truthful, we long for the things of this world. Bring us to a place where we are able to enjoy your creation, but as your Son did not grasp for things for his own glory, but God, let us grasp and lay a hold of your Son and nothing else. And prepare our hearts, not for his first coming, God, but prepare our hearts for his second coming. That we might delight in our exaltation, for we know that all of this is happening unto your glory. Amen.